you join with me once again in a word of prayer that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word? Lord, we come again to the point in our service where your word is not just discussed or even sung, but it is announced, it is heralded, Lord, as it is best done. Because, Lord, it is not just information or teaching. It is news of something that has been accomplished by God. And so, Lord, I pray as your word is heralded, as is announced, as is preached, Lord, that it would be truly your word, that you would keep me faithful. And Lord, I pray that you would make your church faithful to hear it as the words and voice of her good shepherd. And Lord, that its comforts would comfort, its warnings would warn, and its promises would be met with faith that is strengthened. And would you be glorified? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And over the past few weeks of Advent, we've been meditating together on one of the sweetest images of Christmas. One of the most profound and comforting names for the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. The sprouting of the branch from the demolished stump of Jesse, David's family. What do we call this when the child is born in in Bethlehem, in a stable and laid in a manger? What do we call this? Oh, you can call this the budding of Jesse's demolished stump. And as we approached 1 Samuel this year... Working through Judges and then Ruth, we saw the intense need for Israel to have a king. One who would reign over them, one who would possess them for their benefit. They would belong to this king given to him by the Lord. Now he would be their representative, their authority. He himself would have power and authority to, and responsibility to govern for their good and for the glory of God. And he would lead them in righteousness and he would insist on their righteousness and holiness. Saul was the one chosen by God on behalf of his people's hearts, a king after their wicked hearts with a throne after their wicked hearts. But God took the throne from him and gave it to David, son of Jesse, who, and he gave David a throne, a kingdom, a reign that was one of God's own choosing, one that fulfilled God's idea of a king rather than the people's idea of a king. This was a throne of promise and not one which would depend on the ability of the, the people or even their king. This would be a covenant throne. And though David reigned wisely, and there were some bright spots amongst, uh, along the way in, in David's line, his sons did by and large lead Israel into sin. Their reigns, their power led the people of Israel into idolatry and into injustice. And the land was filled and polluted with idolatry and sin, and Israel and the house of David failed to honor their covenant obligations to God but God did not let his covenant fail. 
Now, he promised to cut down both Israel as a people and David's house as their head. He promised to cut them down with an axe, down to the stump, down to the root. And the axe which he used were the empires of the east, Babylon in particular. And while promising to do this before it happened, the Lord also promised that at some point after Israel returns from exile, while Jesse's family is still an obliterated stump, when both Israel and David's house were humiliated, in all this darkness, a shoot would appear from the stump of Jesse, the family of David. And this shoot would be a blessing for the whole of the covenant people. This was prophesied by Isaiah before the exile. Now, being from David's house, this shoot will reign as a king. He will inherit David's throne, but he's also going to inherit David's responsibilities to govern the people in righteousness and peace and joy and holiness and life. We saw over the past couple of weeks that the branches reign. Jesus, the branch, would at first be over a sinful and fallen world, but that it would be one day after his second advent, his second arrival, in the full flowering of his reign, it would be one over a perfect and glorious land, free from sin, free from the corruptions and curse of sin, such as pain and death and sorrow and rebellion and sickness and poverty and strife. A perfect land. We also saw that the branch's responsibility was to fulfill the promise that the people of God would one day be called the Lord is our righteousness. They would be clothed with the righteousness of God himself, his royal and righteous robes, and they would be counted, his righteousness would be counted to them because the branch shooting from Jesse's stump would also take their sin, their royal, their filthy robes and replace them with his royal ones. And so now, we have this setting, we have a purified land, ruled by a perfect and righteous king, and now he has given his people righteousness. We have this righteous and pure land in a righteous and pure people, governed and reigned over by a perfect and pure king. But why? Yes, it's wonderful to live in righteousness and in a perfect world free from the pain of sin and death. But why? For what purpose? The goal is not just a purified world and a purified people. The goal is worship of God by those redeemed people in a redeemed land, in a redeemed world. Now, 400 years ago, the Westminster Confession summarized the chief aim, the chief end, the chief goal and purpose of the creation of mankind. What is the purpose that we exist other than to be just righteous? The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. The righteous branch of David's stump will have a reign to crush sin and rebellion, to bear the curse, to atone for sin, to purify a people in a world. Why? So that the worship of God can be restored. So that the goal of the creation of humanity would be perfectly restored. The full delight in the glory of God to experience and recognize the glory of God and to enjoy the glory of God, to enjoy him by worshiping him and to worship him by enjoying him. The world and the people purified is the stage set for the theater of God's glory. 
As Calvin put it, the display and enjoyment of God, Calvin said, the world, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power, but the church is the orchestra. And that brings us to our first point, which we're going to find in Zechariah 3. The first point being this, the branch that budded at Christmas. The branch restores the temple. If you've got your Bibles, read with me Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Israel, uh, Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land on a, in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will unite, invite sorry, his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so here we have a vision given to the prophet Zechariah after the Lord has brought his people back to the land of Israel after 70 years of crushing exile in Babylon. The temple had been destroyed, the place where the Lord was worshipped and adored, and you could say the place where he was best enjoyed. The Lord is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all at the same time, but his presence is veiled, his covenant presence, his manifest presence. This is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were banished from the Garden of Eden which was the place where they met with the Lord in all his glory, and they delighted in his presence. They fulfilled the mandate for which they were created to enjoy the presence of God and to glorify him in his presence. And he walked with them there. And they were unashamed because they were righteous, they were innocent. Now, a holy God can dwell in the presence of sinful people. That is not the problem. What is the problem is that sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live. It's not fire that has a hard time being in the presence of kindling. It's the other way around. So humanity was banished with our first father, Adam. And now God provided sacrifices to put off their sin, to cover their sin, to put it off into the future, as it were. And he provided a place where the people of his covenant love would be able to count on meeting with him. Yes, the Lord is everywhere, but here he is enjoyed in his glory, unveiled, and they could count on it. 
So this is the place where they could expect his glorious presence. And it came with priests who were set apart to work within this temple to offer sacrifices that the Lord ordained, and he promised to accept them. Animals as substitutes to take the punishment of the people who should have died by entering the presence of the holy God. And instead, God provided and accepted substitutes that enabled them to enter his presence with joy and thanksgiving and to delight in his steadfast love. That temple had been destroyed because of the sin of his people. And it's to these people which the Lord comes and gives a vision to Zechariah. And the vision, and the vision is of a high priest. A man who represents all of Israel in the temple and to offer sacrifices on their behalf. Joshua, a high priest. A man who worked in the temple, in the presence of God. So making it possible for the people to enjoy the presence of God. But this man's clothing is filthy in this vision. And that represented not only his sin, but because he represented his people, it also represented his people's sin. And Satan is standing there to accuse him, denying that he has any right to enter the presence of God, the temple. Neither he or his people, because they are filthy, crush them or banish them if you are a holy God. They can't be in your presence. They must be crushed or banished. The enemy foams. But the Lord himself silences Satan by pointing to and promising the future work of his servant, the branch. Joshua's clothes will be re replaced by clean clothes. His turban replaced with a clean turban. He and the people which he represents will be given pure vestments. We saw this, verse 4. The Lord will remo remove the iniquity of the land and the people who dwell in it, mostly in a single day, verse 9. The branch restores a people, but he also restores temple worship. The ability to serve the Lord in the temple in the presence of God, to stand in his presence and to live and be satisfied by the Lord in all his beauty rather than be destroyed because of God's hot wrath against sin and injustice and rebellion. That's what the reign of the branch will produce. That brings us to our second point, which is this. The branch merges the offices of priest and king. Turn with me now to Zechariah chapter 6. Another prophecy regarding the branch. Isaiah 6, beginning, or sorry, Isaiah, Zechariah 6, beginning at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, or Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. 
and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the counsel of, the pe- of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. So the priest is made pure, representing his people as well. So the people are made pure when the priest is in that last branch vision that we just read about. In this vision, the branch, the high priest is present as well. Returned exiles in this vision take gold and silver and they make a crown and they place it on the high priest's head. Now Joshua, this high priest, is not the branch. He is a sign, he's a vision, he's a prophecy of the branch. Now the priests, as we saw earlier, ruled the temple, which was the house of God. They did not wear crowns. Remember the first, first vision, he's wearing a turban, like a good high priest should. But now this priest has a crown put on his head. Now it's either that or there's two on the same throne. Or same throne. But it's not clear, is it two people or one? Well, we see that in the, the branch, it is one person. One throne with, that contains a priest, but also contains a ruling king wearing a crown. That's the branch, says the vision. Put those two pieces together, those two images together, that's the branch. So he ruled the people of God. Now, King David was not a priest. He did not rule over the temple or the tent temple uh, beforehand. He didn't rule over it. He ruled the people of God. Priests were not kings. These were two offices that the Lord had set up, and there was also a third, and that was prophet, prophet, priest, and king. And so we have all of these three in this vision because Zechariah is a prophet. Now the branch, the coming king from David's family tree, would also be not just king, but priest. He's going to merge the offices of priest and king together. The Messiah would be a king and also a priest. He wouldn't just rule over the land, to build and purify a kingdom, but he would also build and restore and purify and use and rule the temple to restore the worship and glorification of God and the enjoyment of his holy presence by sinful people. In fact, him reigning over both the temple and the people of God at the same time It hints that those two houses, the house of God and the house of Israel, the temple and the people of God, two houses, the household of God and the house of God, they actually would become the same thing under the branches rule. See, to be part of the people of God, to be a citizen of the king, to be under his rule would also mean that you're part of the temple, serving and delighting and glorying in the presence of the holy God who's more satisfying than water. Finally, doing in fullness what you were created and designed to do, but your sin and guilt prevented you from doing. Now, the last priest king we see before this is Melchizedek, who just shows up in the life of Abraham a thousand years before Zechariah. He is priest of the Lord, and he's also king of peace, king of Salem. 
and the branch, the Messiah, would take up Melchizedek's priesthood, and he'd reign over the whole universe to do so. Not just the temple, not just Israel, but over the entire universe. His reign and his priesthood would extend to the ends of the earth. This bud, the demolished stump of Jesse, who appears in the manger in Bethlehem, would reign and restore worship in the presence of God because he was both king and priest. Ruling the people of God and the land of God and the house, the temple of God. That brings us to our third point, which is this. The branch includes those far off in the building of his temple. For that, we're going to read Zechariah 6. We're going to continue that vision. Verse 15. Zechariah 6, 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The reign of the branch will extend to the whole world. His temple, which he will build, will include those far off. They're going to gather from afar to join in the building of the temple of the Lord to restore worship in the presence of God. Now, now what does it mean? What does far off mean? Well, at first is going to mean that the people of Israel, who had been scattered abroad by enemy invasions, they're going to now return from afar. He's going to gather them in from the four winds back to himself. But it also means more than this. Hear what Peter says at Pentecost. When he preached to a large group of Jews 50 days after Christ's crucifixion and 10 days after Christ ascended to the throne in heaven to govern all things for the glory of God and the good of his people. That's what Peter says, Acts 2, 39. You'll hear something pretty familiar. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Now, the first part of the promise, that oath, would have been familiar for these Jewish worshipers of God, to you and your children. For all who are far off, Peter here, we see very clearly, is actually talking about all nations. He's saying that the oaths, the saving work of God, the end times glory and blessing which would come through the Messiah, the branch, these glories and forgiveness were to Jews and their children and also to all who were far off. Who? Everyone? No. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself, Jew and Gentile. And those who hear the gospel of Jesus and who respond with faith. Hearing the gospel is the external call from God. Believing the gospel is the internal call from God, the Holy Spirit calling you from within. Paul also speaks of those far off being included in the temple building, the temple that the branch would build. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, 
we'll read this. Ephesians 2, we're going to begin at verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. And, uh, sorry, uh, 4. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came. And, preach, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not only are the Gentiles included in the building of the temple, which the branch the Messiah builds, they are part of the temple. It's better than the Jews could have ever hoped for. They are not simply just able to enter the temple, not just to walk from their village or from their house and then see the temple off in the distance and walk toward it and then go in. They're going to be part of the temple. Living stones, says Peter. And so are the Gentiles who trust in the branch, the Messiah, from the stump of Jesse. Never leaving his manifest, pure, perfect presence. They'll never have to enter the temple because they'll never leave it. No matter where they roam on the earth, they will never leave the pure presence of God. And so the Messiah restores all of creation. He banishes sin, and then he restores his people by giving them his own righteousness, all so that they could live in the glorious, holy, satisfying, fulfilling presence of the Lord God Almighty to worship him. And we get a glimpse of that fully flowered reign of the Messiah in a vision that's given to John. And we see this in Revelation chapter 21. And I'd, and I'd urge you to turn with me there. Revelation chapter 21. Here we get to the light in the second arrival, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the branch. 
Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, the detestable. As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Behold, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the rod who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Listen to this. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp 
is the Lamb. By its light then will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a glorious vision of the finished work of the branch, which budded on Christmas and who made the payment for this glory at, at Calvary 2,000 years ago. The full reward of his payment coming at his second arrival, when he will no longer reign over, decay, over a decaying and rebellious and cursed earth, but when he comes in his flesh and his human body to reign over a new heaven and new earth, the dwelling place of God is now with men. There's no distance between heaven and earth. The two, heaven and earth, will be united. And there's no need for a temple. Why? Because God is here to dwell. The temple previously marked the boundaries of the space where you could come to expect to meet with the Lord inside, you could expect his glorious and holy presence. Here, you needed to have a sacrifice to atone for your sin, or you would perish if you entered. That same glorious presence that you would normally find only in the holy of holies, which the people of God longed to enter into, and which where they were ordinarily forbidden Upon entering, uh, on entering upon pain of death and only through their one representative. That same glorious presence will now cover the whole face of the whole earth. There will be no place on earth that you would be able to stand without atonement for sin. There is currently places on this earth where you can stand without atonement for sin. But there will one day no, be no place on the earth where you could stand without atonement for sin because it will be the holy of holies. And there will be no place on earth where you will have to travel to have fullness of joy in the presence of God because the whole earth will be covered with the glory of God in its fullness. The branch restores the world and its people so that they could worship in his presence. And now, brothers and sisters, we see in part. Then we will see him face to face. In a world which itself will be what only the Garden of Eden was to Adam and what only the Holy of Holies was for the Old Testament people. This was a vision given to the suffering church that was under intense persecution, being burned at the stake, rejected and abandoned by their families, unable to buy or sell in the marketplace, imprisoned and tortured. And this vision comes to the suffering and precious bride of the Lord. Just a glimpse of how glorious the inheritance is for those who are grafted into the branch of Jesse by faith. This all depends on how worthy that man is. The hope of Christians is fully resting on the weight of how worthy the branch is. These dear churches 
may suffer much for holding fast to the gospel, for enduring, for conquering. And the promise for them is that their Messiah, her bridegroom, is worthy. Now, if one finds a treasure buried in the ground and you have no money to buy the land, so you sell it so that you can buy that land and with it all that's buried in it, whether those possessions that you have to give up with joy, whether you give them up with sadness or with joy depends on how valuable that treasure is. And we are assured over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture that the glory that awaits the people of God when the whole world will be what only the Holy of Holies was, we are assured that it is worthy. We get a picture of the longing for this in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and, and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of song and praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hope in God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me at the day, all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What could satisfy the psalmist's longings? only the presence of God and to worship him and praise him there. What did his heart turn to? What memories did his heart turn to when he was grieved and longing for the presence of God? He longed for those days that he could remember he and his people walking with joy into the courts of God, the temple. Sacrifices having been made so that as they enter the presence of God, they will not be destroyed because of their sin. If only I could join the people of God in the temple of God, he says, then my soul will be satisfied in this world of sin and death. Brothers and sisters, to worship him in his presence, in a world free from sin, is that goal. And by his grace and spirit, we can taste of it now. His presence dwells within the church, which is his holy temple in an unholy world the place where his presence is known and where his people worship him and delight their souls in him, not the building, but the church, the people, living stones. Now his people pursue holiness as they delight in him and delight their souls in him and his presence. And they reject 
sin and the estrangement from God. And they instead pursue the worship of God who first made them and loved them and redeemed them. And so brothers and sisters, do not let your souls be satisfied by sin. And so repent whenever you see it. And if you do not repent of sin, you are declaring that sin is better than the presence of God. And it will ruin your appetite and ability to delight in the worship of the Lord God. Repent and believe in Christ that he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse you of your sin and restore you for worship. Brothers and sisters, you who were once far off because of your sin, banished from the presence of God because of your sin, can you even fathom the joy of worshiping the Lord, our Savior, in his presence? In a world which itself is prepared to be the temple, to be what the temple used to be a mere shadow of, the full delight of the presence of God who loved us while we were enemies, while we were far off. The reign of the branch is going to cleanse the world and his people, not merely for a better or more righteous life, but for worship of the holy God, to delight in what is most delightful to be satisfied with living water, to have our tears wiped away, and not just merely wiped away, but replaced with tears of joy, which will be immeasurable in the presence of the God who holds the universe together. The glory and joy which caused Jesus to endure the cross and despise its shame, knowing that the glory which awaited him and his body, the church, that glory would outweigh the grief which belongs to us now for being his temple in a fallen world. So is that lamb worthy of worship and praise and glory? Is that branch which budded first in Mary's womb and then in the manger, is his presence worth enduring all things for? He reigns now, brothers and sisters, to bring all his dear people, his bride, to himself and to hold them and then bring them to that day, the day when his reign will not be from above but from here on this soil, in a purified land, with a purified people, whose hearts will finally do what they were created to do, worship him in his presence, to glorify him and enjoy him for as long as he is worthy and for as long as he shall reign. And he shall reign. Father, we confess that we need a king. Like the people of Israel in the book of Judges, in Ruth and Samuel, we need a king to not just suggest righteousness, not to just give the example of righteousness, but to give us righteousness, to insist on it, to reign righteously over a righteous people in a righteous and glorified and redeemed holy land. And we're grateful that you gave us that king not simply so that we could be righteous and be happy that we are now righteous, but now being righteous, being clothed with Christ's righteousness, we can now 
worship you in your presence. Where we, on our own, have no right to be. No expectation of being in your presence without being destroyed by your holiness. But Lord, we are grateful that Christ himself on the cross was destroyed instead of us. So that we could not just endure your presence, but be overwhelmed with joy eternally because of it. Lord, haste that day and work faith in us and endurance in us so that we would be found waiting for Christ when he returns to judge the living and the dead. I pray you would do this in Jesus' name.